welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. Today is July 16th, 2014, and this is broadcast number 67. Now, if you're following the podcast on a regular basis, you know that this is supposed to be a weekly program, and because it's summer and because of other things, we are... um, a little bit slow in this process, but we are working on it. I promise that we will get back to the point where we have guests on a regular basis. But it doesn't mean we're doing nothing around the hallowed halls of Greenville Seminary, because that would simply be not true. We are still actively looking for guests and working on different topics and programs, which brings me to the whole point I'm saying this. If you, the listener, have an idea for a guest or a topic or both, Um, feel free to write in and tell me. Uh, You can simply contact me through my email address, which is confessingourhope at gpts.edu. That's gpts, Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary, .edu. And then give me your suggestions, and I will consider them and pass them along to the right, to the powers to be, and then we'll go from there. So I'm always interested in input and uh, even hate mail. I have got them from time to time. So, you know, it's not a problem. Um, I just delete those. So, you know, but you can write them anyway. And, but again, confessing our hope at gpts.edu. Today, we're going to be talking with a pastor of an OPC congregation um, about the process and progress and pitfalls and roadblocks and the headaches and even the joys and the encouragements of going from a mission work to a particularized work. Now, you, if you're listening to that and you're thinking, what, what is that? What is a mission work? What is a particularized work? Well, we'll get into that and we'll talk about those definitions in just a minute. Let me bring you up to speed on uh, what's going on at Greenville Seminary. As most of you know, we have two summer classes that are being offered here um, at the seminary. They're both week-long Programs. There's going to be a preaching class that's going to be held uh, at the end of July, um, on uh, particularly on the Book of Acts. And then Dr. Nick Wilborn, who is an adjunct professor of the seminary, will be doing Southern Presbyterian Theology, another week-long class in the beginning of August that also has a tour of some of the more popular Southern Presbyterian sites, uh, both in Columbia, South Carolina, and in Charleston. So if you haven't registered for either one of these classes, it's not too late. Uh, You simply go to our website, gpts.edu, and the information is right there on the main page for you to look over and consider. And I would strongly encourage you to at least do one if you're able, Um, especially that Southern Presbyterian Theology class. um, I'm taking it, and I'm really looking forward to all that's going to be involved in that class. In addition to that, we do have the mobile app. Don't forget about that. We've had a number of downloads even this month, and it continues to grow, and I'm very encouraged to see people using it. But that mobile app, as I've said a thousand times in the past, has our chapel sermons, our podcast, our theology conference lectures, even videos um, for you to use, all free of charge uh, to your edification. And so if you get stuck in an airport somewhere, you have something to do. And, uh, I mean, everybody has an mobile phone now, right? So get it, use it, it's free, and uh, I think you'll enjoy it. And especially uh, in, the, in, in the next few weeks, we're going to be redesigning it a little bit, and there's going to be some changes, um, but hopefully better for the better, not for the, for the worst. Now, as I indicated, we're going to be talking with Pastor Matt Figura. He is uh, the pastor of Faith Presbyterian Church, uh, um, which is an OPC congregation. Um, He's been there since June of 2009. He received his MDiv from this seminary that's in Greenville, South Carolina. just happens to be Greenville Seminary. Um, So he graduated in May of 2009. So he went right from student 
to pastor in one month. How about that? And he is married and has six children, and no comments about that either. But Matt, it's good to have you on. I know you and I have talked um, many times just candidly and, and got to know each other quite, a, uh, I think, pretty well over the last couple of years. And so it's good to have you on to talk about this particular subject, which I even indicated to you off air. Um, there's a number of mission works, both in the OPC and the PCA. And so I think this would be a very helpful, maybe encouraging um, discussion on mission work to particularization. But anyway, it's good to have you on and talk with me about this subject. Thanks, brother. Good to be on. Why don't we start with the definitions? Um, I, I mentioned on the introduction that people may be uh, who may not be of the Presbyterian or Reformed persuasion. They may hear a mission work and they may think they know what it means. And and also, what does it mean to be a particular congregation? Why don't you tell us maybe what what are the, what does those what do those terms mean? Yeah, in terms of being a mission work, um, you're talking about. Uh, a body of believers that have come together uh, that are essentially on <laughs> life support provided by uh, either the presbytery uh, or by uh, the mother church. And of course, mm-hmm. we have our debates uh, about which one of those models is a better model, but uh, that notwithstanding, you know, being a mission work, you, you have key resources provided you uh, by uh, the body that is helping you uh, to become a particular work. And so you don't have, for instance, your own local elders. Uh, you, uh, you are usually, um, you know, you don't have the financial wherewithal to be self-sustaining. Um, those are two uh, key things that would differentiate a mission work from uh, a particularized church. And I suppose if you're moving on to talking about what a particularized work is, well, you know, self-sustaining is is important. And, you know, again, not self-sufficient from the standpoint that, well, now we have arrived. Um, that will never happen until glory. Um, but, right. but in the sense that now, you know, from within itself, the congregation has identified and trained and then you know, voted for and are ready to um, to see ordained and or installed their own officers, um, elders, again, and or deacons. And um, so self-sustaining is, is, you know, with regard to, uh, to particularly officers, um, but also things like, you know, financial wherewithal and other issues of, of self-sustenance. Would a helpful analogy maybe be, um, you know, in the parenting world, um, you have a child and he's dependent on mom and dad. And so you train and teach and they grow and they learn and they gain knowledge. And as they get older, then they move out of the home and they begin to live in the world on their own. And they're not necessarily dependent exclusively on mom and dad anymore. Is that Would that be a helpful analogy? Yeah, absolutely so. They, they never, maybe to further the analogy, even at that point, they never lose that close connection with their parents, but the relationship changes. Yeah. And I think it's also important to point out with a mission work, you're not talking about a church that just kind of like decides you're not talking about a situation, at least in Presbyterian circles, you're not talking about a man who says, you know what, I want to plant a church. And so they drive a stake in the ground and say, now we're a church. Right. 
Right. You're you're talking about an established church, uh, an established congregation um, that says we think we need a church here. And then they look for somebody who's willing to actually work on organizing that mm-hmm. process. And so there's always that oversight going on and that, that connection, that protection, that helpfulness, that edification, that encouragement. So it's not this lone ranger type of mentality, at least in Presbyterian circles. Right. Um, and I think that's really the biblical model as well, um, where even we see Paul planning churches. You know, he didn't just, because he was an apostle, obviously it has a little different twist, but the reality is that they were all connected to one another um, as he was going around doing that. So now I, an interesting uh, thought occurred to me as you were talking. When you went to seminary, did you see yourself as a, as a, as a man who was going to be uh, doing a mission work that was going to move then to being particularized? Was that what you saw yourself doing? Yeah, this is, this is funny, and if it's, if it's fine to elaborate, maybe slightly beyond the scope of the question, that there's a history to this. Um, growing up, I, I grew up in, in the much, much more broadly evangelical environment, and from the time that I was, I'd say, 17 or 18, um, the elders of that particular congregation had told me, you know, we're going to send you to seminary. And you're going to come back and then plant a church off of this church. So, I mean, this is when I was, you know, a teenager. <laughs> so that there, there was that in the history. Of course, once I came to understand the doctrines of grace um, and the Lord began to unform, you know, unfold Reformed theology uh, to me, then that offer was quickly taken off the table somehow. Um, and, you know, the rest is history. But during the seminary years, I still maintained uh, a desire uh, to eventually be a church planter. And, and some of that was just, you know, in God's providence, people had, had said over the years, you know, you, you seem to be able to really establish relationships and, and work with people. And so I, I never really thought, well, this is what I'm going to do. I just remained open to um, whatever the Lord would do in terms of call um, that way. And, and even the congregation that I served as an intern, uh, immediately preceding, you know, coming to Cookville, um, in 2009, um, uh, one of the ideas there, there, there were never any commitments or anything like that, but one of the ideas that had been discussed was the possibility of, uh, of me upon ordination, uh, the completion of seminary, then becoming, um, a church planter and establishing a daughter church, from that congregation. Mm. And so, mm. you know, so these things were always, uh, were always there. And my desire to do that at that time, you know, 2008, early 2009 was very strong. Um, but it was interesting how the Lord had different plans for exactly where that would happen. Yeah, that's, that, that's interesting because I, I, I know I've had conversations with people here as, as everybody knows, I'm a student. Um, at the seminary, and you know, I don't see myself as a mission, as planning a mission work. I I, I just don't. I mean, that's I, I don't know what that means. I just don't see it. Um, doesn't mean that the Lord won't change that attitude or change that desire. He could, and if he does, that's fine. Um, I'm not resistant to it. I'm not opposed to it. I just don't see myself because of my age at, of life and where I'm at, my season of life. I just don't know. Um, okay, be that as it may, who knows, things could change dramatically. And that's really why I asked the question, because it seems like 
to do a mission work, you know, there's such a difference, uh, at least in, in my ignorance probably, uh, as I look at a man who's going to go and, and plant a church in some town or some place that's never had that kind of church there before, and it just seems like, wow, there's a lot of work involved, um, even beyond just what you already would expect is going to be a lot of work anyway. Mm-hmm. Is that what ha- was that your experience when you started to do the mission work? Did you find that the things that you were necessarily hearing about when you were in seminary didn't translate maybe perfectly one to one into the mission work type of environment? Oh, definitely. Um, you know, I well, when I got on the field, you know, back to the the question in terms of did I view myself as a church planter? There's been a a desire to be a church planter but a certain cluelessness about what that was going to look like. And so when I got to the field, I I met my counterpart in uh, our sister denomination here in town. Mm. And this brother um, was active in the community. He was part of the Rotary Club. He was in numerous uh, community events and, and, you know, frankly put me to shame and, and, you know, had set the bar for community involvement so high that there was no way I was ever going to reach that, uh, especially given given my particular set of, of um, strengths and weaknesses. And so uh, when I first got to the field, I was a little overwhelmed by, uh, by the question, what do I do to carve out some kind of a niche mm-hmm. in this community uh, so that I can, you know, begin to have some kind of influence for the gospel? And, and that was, that was difficult. You know, I, I tried a lot of things. Um, you know, I, I played in a, uh, you know, to my own potential embarrassment, you know, played in the citywide tennis tournament and, you know, joined a volleyball league and, uh, did, did different things like that. And, um, I, it, it's still an area where, where that's not, that's not my natural, um, my natural abilities. My natural abilities are just to meet people and, and to establish relationships. Uh, but, but the more, the, the things that people usually talk about in terms of church planting, you know, you've got to establish yourself in the community. You've got to uh, have a program, you know, your church has to have programs and, and different things like that. We, we had none of those things. And I personally didn't have um, e- either the wisdom or the wherewithal <laughs> to establish sure. myself that way uh, in a community with which I was utterly unfamiliar anyways. Um, you know, I'm from California and Cookville, Tennessee is a long way from California uh, in a great many ways. Hmm. Well, yeah, that's, um, yeah, that's right. Cause we never said you were from California. So, <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, I, I would suspect California to the southeast corner of the United States. That's a dr- big cultural difference and change. So, are you there? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I wasn't sure. It sounded like I was like, okay, I hope we didn't have one of those wig outs. Those who are listening to this, they're thinking, okay, those guys are nuts. But uh, And they get to hear my cough, which I missed the mute button before I cough, so I apologize for that, but be that as it may. Um, but all this to be said is that you know, planning a, mis- planning a church, uh, doing a mission work has its own difficulties, uh, just inherent within the process. And so 
I think we talked a little bit about how you first got involved with it, but maybe we didn't really talk specifically about how you got involved with where you are now. Mm -hmm. And why don't you tell us where that is and then, um, and then how you got involved there specifically. Sure. Well, Faith Presbyterian's a, um, a work here in the, the Cookville, Tennessee area. Cookville's roughly halfway between Knoxville and Nashville. And so my, my involvement with the congregation actually dates back quite a number of years. I, I was uh, stated supply in the Bristol, Tennessee, Virginia area. Uh, back from 2003 to 2006. And during that time, uh, we had been praying for this little faith Presbyterian mission work in Cookville, Tennessee. And the report had come to us during those years that, uh, that the work had grown so small that the presbytery had actually, uh, was actually sending a, um, you know, a delegation or, or, you know, whatever the right term is there, but, but sending some men to communicate, uh, to the church that, uh, to this mission work that they, uh, really ought to consider closing the doors. You know, they, they had been a mission work since 1999. And, um, so a, a fairly, fairly long, uh, history, but, um, they had been going at it for a number of years. The, the they had only ever had one pastor, um, and and that that relationship lasted, I, I think, less than two years. Um, and so they went for years and years and years with just um, people coming. A, a lot of professors came um, from Greenville Seminary, pastors from other places, but uh, they they really were on on you know spiritual life support. And the recommendation came that the work be closed. Well, as I heard about the story, um, what, what ended up happening was the, the brothers that went to communicate this advice from the presbytery uh, showed up in Cookville and were, you know, essentially informed that there had been a phone call from a family out in California that had said, well, you know, we understand that, that you might be closing, but We'd rather you didn't because we're going to be moving there. And then within another six to 12 months, there was another family, a, a ruling elder in the OPC who was relocating for retirement. Um, and so within that six to 12 month period, uh, it was decided that uh, the church would not close. Now, the reason I, I tell you all this, this is, I know, off the field of the question, but this is the background. All the while, uh, while they're struggling to survive, I'm at Greenville Seminary beginning in, in the year 2000, struggling all the way until 2009 to get my MDiv. Now, there have been lots of jokes about that uh, with people that know me, you know, and one of the questions that this particular mission work asked me when they interviewed me was, you know, Matt, we're a little concerned. Why did it take you nine years to graduate from seminary? Uh, I'm not going to go into that on the air, but uh, whether it was ineptitude or, or just uh, God's kind providence, uh, the Lord was at the same time he was preparing them with all of their ups and downs. He was doing the exact same thing with me. And, you know, for every time that they thought about the work closing, I probably had a similar thought about not pursuing the ministry and, and, you know, just determining that 
perhaps I, I wasn't really called to the ministry. And so when I got a phone call from our regional home missionary in uh, September of 2008, uh, he said, you know, Matt, we've, you know, the Cookville uh, mission work. And uh, I've been telling them that, that I know uh, the guy who would be a good fit for them. And, uh, and I said, oh, well, who's that? And he said, well, it's you. And I thought, well, no way, because, you know, I had my sights set on staying where I was and uh, planning a daughter church and, and all of that. My, my plans were, uh, at least in my own mind, fairly well fixed. And, and, and my dear brother just asked me, would you pray about this for a month? Well, you know, what are you going to say to that? Um, sure, I'll, I'll pray about it for a month. But I have to be honest, I, I was not, um, I, I was doing it out of deference to him and had no, absolutely no thought that anything would materialize from it. And that's a stupid way to pray, frankly. <laughs> but at any rate, um, I, I did pray for a month. And in that month, the possibility of what I thought was going to be evaporated and or began to, to do so. And when he called me back a month later, he asked if I had prayed about it, and, and my attitude had completely changed at that point because I had begun to pray fervently about it. And uh, even my wife, who was who was even more desiring to stay where we were than I was, uh, had come to the same conclusion that that we we really ought to uh, to look into this and, and to see what the Lord may have. Uh, so that that was that was the beginning, and and he, you know, he said, well. There, there may be the possibility he communicated to the mission work that, that we may be able to, um, to, you know, have me come and that. So in October of 2008, uh, we traveled from, uh, Raleigh to Cookville and, uh, I was right in the middle of, of my seminary semester and, uh, we met the folk. Now I had been told and, and, you know, you cut me off whenever you want and ask the next question, brother. I, this is, uh, I'm, I'm fond of this part of the story, though. <laughs> uh, we got there. I had been told by the regional home missionary that this was just going to be a simple, you know, come and preach and and just it's a meet and greet. And so I went there with that mindset. No pressure. Just fill the pulpit and enjoy, you know, the fellowship with the folks and get to know them a little bit and vice versa. So we did that. Well, I preached in the morning service and they had a fellowship meal afterwards. And um, in the course of that, the regional home missionary stands up and he says, well, hey, everybody, you know, since we've got him here, we might as well just ask him whatever questions you want to ask him. And so the meet and greet turned into a formal interview. And two hours later, um, I had spilled my guts and um, later uh, the next morning, as we were driving back uh, to Raleigh, I turned to my wife in the van and I said, honey, if they call us back and they have any interest in pursuing this, then they're, they're either crazy or, or the Lord's going to call us here or, or maybe both. Um, and we laughed about it and Later, later on that week, we uh, we got the phone call that said the congregation had met and uh, and that they 
were unanimous in their desire to have us come back. So that that's the beginning uh, of of how we met the saints, um, who were who were very few in number um, in in Cookville. And Bill, if you want me to go on and talk about you know how how the call actually came, I, I can you know be happy to do that as well. Yeah, that, that why don't we do that, and then we'll move into some of these other questions that we have prepared. Um, but let's do that. And and I was talking, and I had my mute button on. So <laughs> this is what happens. See, I'm not in I'm 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 not in good practice. See? <laughs> That's fine. <clears throat> um, That's fine. Um, Anyway, I, um, <laughs> I, should, I should have just kept going. It was my instinct, yeah, but it started. No, you're fine. Time. Yeah, I mean, how does that work? Because I know, um, you know, in, in the conventional process, uh, it's an established church. They already have a session. They already have deacons. And then they have a search committee, maybe, perhaps. And then they call a man, and, and then they're installed, and um, you're off and running. Uh, how is that different from a mission work type of call to do that? Yeah, good good question. The you know in a mission work the in this case uh, because we were a work of the presbytery, um, and and maybe backing up if if we were uh, being planted as a daughter church of another local congregation, then we would have been under the direct oversight of that session the, those elders and under the wing of you know of that congregation. But since we were a work of the presbytery. Uh, we were under the oversight of a provisional session. And, and that means that we had, in this case, the regional home missionary, whose job it is to oversee all of the mission works in the presbytery. Uh, we had uh, then other, other brothers who were from uh, surrounding churches in the presbytery. Uh, one was driving up from Atlanta. Um, we, we had uh, one brother who um, came in from Lookout Mountain. Um, it, it, was, it was pretty spread out. So that, that's, the answer to that question is, yeah, we, were, we didn't have our own elders. We, we didn't have the ability as a mission work to, um, to even vote to do anything. Um, that power all belonged to the presbytery. And so um, we, we struck a bit of a practical balance, and I say we, I wasn't part of the we at that point, obviously, but um, the congregation discussed um, who to call and how to go about the process amongst themselves, and they would communicate uh, their wishes to the provisional session. And of course, the regional home missionary was already working intimately uh, he was preaching there once a month for many years. And so they had a good established relationship. The link between the presbytery through the regional home missionary and the, and the, uh, and the mission work was very good. And that was, that was very helpful. So anyway, uh, in my case, the, the congregation met after they, they had initially heard me preach and asked me all those questions, the, uh, the grand inquisition um, as I later referred uh, to that day, and and they decided they wanted to pursue it. So they got a hold of the provisional session and said, you know, brothers, th this is who we would like to pursue at this point. Um, and they, of course, had the blessing of, of the provisional session and the regional home missionary. So what happened was I, I get the call back and 
and I, I remember this conversation uh, like it was yesterday, but uh, first I, I was shocked that they were inviting me back for a formal candidating weekend um, because the interview was, first of all, unexpected. It was supposed to be meet and greet, and it turned into a full-on interrogation. Secondly, my answers in the interrogation were so raw. Um, I had no time to really think through any of the answers that I was going to say. They, they were truly off the cuff and impromptu. And, and I just, you know, like I mentioned before, I, I mentioned to my wife, you know, honey, if they end up wanting to call us here, they're, they're either crazy or this is the providence of God or maybe both. Um, so when they invited me back, uh, I was surprised on the one hand. And then I, it occurred to me, I'm right in the middle of of my seminary semester and, you know, if I don't, if I don't finish and graduate um, by completing this semester that I'm in the middle of at the end of 2008 and then the spring semester of 2009, then this is moot anyways uh, because I won't be able to be ordained. So I, had, I didn't have the ability to drive six or seven hours for another candidating weekend uh, between Raleigh and Cookville. And so I, I told them that I said the earliest I could come would be, you know, mid to late December, which was another at least month and a half out. And the response was, well, uh, if you will, you know, if, if we can strike an agreement that that we'll wait for you until mm-hmm. you can do it, then will you commit to us that you won't candidate anywhere else? which I, I thought personally was hilarious because I had no designs on doing so anyways, nor the ability to do so. So it was really an easy agreement to strike. And, uh, and we continued to pray. Uh, I went there and, and this was, this was really uh, in the providence of God. It was an amazing weekend. It was very informative for me because I saw that this was though only, you know, 18 people, uh, this was a group that was dead serious about, you know, being reformed and, and, and they wanted, they didn't want some, some big name preacher. Uh, they, they didn't want somebody to come in and do programs. They didn't want somebody that, that was going to come in and do church growth. They, they wanted a pastor first and foremost. And so when they scheduled this candidating visit, they, they literally made me go into every home that was represented at the time in the mission work and spend at least a couple hours um, talking with each family. And I thought it was a, you you can't do that in every congregation. You know, if you have 18 people, you can. And and so we spent, you know, two solid days uh, doing that. And then we had another interview and, and preached and spent the Lord's day together. And it was the, it was the biggest whirlwind weekend uh, of my life to that point. And from that came uh, the call from the presbytery through the, uh, the provisional session, the regional home missionary, um, the congregation had communicated their desire to call me upon the completion of seminary um, in May 2009. And, and so that's what happened. Well, that is a <laughs> long but interesting. I, you know, it's just, you know, I, I'm thinking, I'm sitting here thinking to myself, okay, I'm going to be going through this process, maybe not a mission work, but still, regardless, I'm going to be going through this soon. And I'm thinking, yeah, okay. Um, 
Uh, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> now when you first came, when you first came, okay. Now you came. You've been you've been installed to do this work, and um, you know what was your initial? You've already kind of touched on this a little bit, but what were your initial thoughts about the whole? Situation. You mentioned you had 18 people, and you mentioned that they, they were really fired up and excited about the work. Um, but was it what you thought it would be, or or maybe did it? Did you have to really adjust dramatically as to what you thought was going to be to what it was? Yeah. Um, in one sense, it's easy to answer that question because I had no idea uh, what to expect, and and you know I was very apprehensive. Um, I. I you know, I knew, <laughs> I knew that I was nothing like a prototypical church planter. I knew whatever that is, you know, I, and, and I knew that, um, that I was going to face major challenges, but, but I, I really didn't know what those would end up looking like. Um, uh, the, the things that, that I was very encouraged by early on was the hunger uh, of this small little band of believers for reformed Christ-centered expository preaching. Um, mm. and, and, you know, that, that obviously that's not, um, unique to a mission work, you know, um, you want to see that obviously wherever you would go to pastor, but I was very encouraged that, it wasn't just that they weren't, they didn't have tunnel vision for how can we get people in here? Uh, I think that's a trap that a lot of church planners end up falling into is they mm-hmm. spend so much of their time and their focus on getting people through the doors that they forget uh, a, a really three pronged approach, preaching, shepherding, and commitment to corporate prayer. Um, you, you've got to use those means um, in a mission work and not lose sight of the fundamental importance of those things while uh, remaining vigilant about reaching the broader community. And so I think maybe balancing those priorities was was a great challenge and continues to be, frankly, uh, both early on in the ministry and, and continuing to this day. And what kind of goals did you have? I mean, obviously grow, okay, grow, goal one. <laughs> yeah. Get bigger. Um, but what, what kind of, you know, tangible goals did you have coming in? I mean, obviously a mission work is not established. I mean, there's a lot of other things that need to be done. Um, you don't have elders to help necessarily uh, as you would in an established congregation. Um, and, and that might be even a blessing in some sense. Um, never mind, I'm not going to go there. Um <laughs> But, um, you know, what, what kind of plans or goals did you have going in and, and did, uh, did you see them changing or, or shifting a little bit as time went on? Yeah, initially, I, I had a friend, a very dear friend, who uh, started out straight out of seminary as a church planter. And he was, you know, one of my early role models in the Reformed faith um, and I saw him get absolutely eaten alive in the context of the mission work he was in. And it was over the issue of worship mm-hmm. because he would have people come through the doors that wanted to basically redefine worship and, and implement their own ideas of what worship was in that mission work and put their own particular stamp on it. And 
this is just one example, obviously, but, but in terms of goals, I had that in my head as something that, that I needed to be proactive in, in trying to avoid. Um, and so for better or worse, what, one of the things that I really emphasized early on was, was tightening up our reformed, both understanding of reform worship and the liturgy that we had. Yeah. Our liturgy was, was good anyway, um, coming in the door. They, they had done a good job, but just teaching on why we worship the way that we do. What's the regulative principle? What are the implications um, of that? And trying to really, you know, stabilize the base so that when more broad, you know, broadly evangelical folk would come in, which is what we wanted. We wanted the unconverted to come in on the one hand. We wanted uh, the under church to come in. We wanted uh, broader evangelicals to come in. And, and so when they did, we wanted to be ready so that we would not waver or be shaken uh, and cave in and compromise on things that we, that we held to be critical. Mm -hmm. So worship was one thing. Um, I, I really wanted to establish in-home shepherding visits uh, right away because I, I I knew that that was something that could very easily fall through the cracks when you were devoting lots and lots of time to outreach and evangelism and you know involvement in the community. Um, and so I, I really wanted to prioritize and establish that. Interestingly, um, that was established very well early on, but as the ministry took shape and, and challenges came and, and other pressures, you know, entered, one of the things that I didn't do well and maintain as a church planter was that, that, you know, at least annual, uh, in-home shepherding visit, um, where I tended to, to, do better was keeping in contact and having a lot of contact with our mm-hmm. folks. Mm-hmm. But God's people need that, that in home formal formal is maybe not the best word, but that, that visit of their shepherding elder to help them and to help assess their spiritual health. And you know what I'm saying? So I, yeah, it's it's different than you know a social a social visit where you're just chatting about the the ball game that was on last night. Um, but you, it, you're talking about spiritual matters, things that are of importance um, as as a pastor of the church and as, and as it were elders in the church. That it, so you know in in a sense it is more formal. I mean that's that, I think that's fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we wanted to we wanted to be confessional. Uh, we wanted to have an active shepherding ministry. We wanted to uh, be engaged in discipleship. I had lots of meetings with um, the, the men of the congregation, especially uh, uh-huh. to encourage that. We wanted to have a presence on the campus. Um, we have Tennessee uh, Tech, uh, a big engineering school here in, in Cookville. Um, and so we, we were involved. They, this is almost humorous, the, the title of this, but they put on, a religious fair uh, every year in connection with their orientation week and churches can come in and, and basically have a table and hand out literature and you know talk to incoming students and that sort of thing uh, so we've, we've sought to do that uh, each year and we've 
you know, we've from that been able to establish, not directly from that, but we, we've been able to have uh, some Bible studies uh, in some of the years on campus and have gained more and more students uh, from campus. Now, I'm, I'm talking a handful of students here, not not like, you know, 50 students or anything, uh, but we desire to have a, a presence on the campus uh, as well. And then, of course, you want to reach out in the community and and uh, that was that was a, a weakness of ours. We were strong in terms of building relationships and inviting people to come and check out the work. We we didn't do a great job. That would be an understatement of finding ways collectively as a as a congregation, as a as a mission work to reach out into the community. And what kind of difficulties then did you encounter? I mean, you just mentioned one, um, yeah. you know, outreach. I mean, that's always a, I mean, let's, I mean, let's just be honest. I mean, it, it's, <laughs> I mean, there's a certain level of boldness that, has to, that comes with, you know, just kind of jumping in and, and talking with strangers and getting involved in the community and trying to think outside the box about how to do that. And, and then how did you overcome those issues? Yeah. Well, I mean, you, you hear people say, Things like, well, pastors especially say, well, I'm not really gifted in evangelism. And, and while that very well may be true, um, as a church planter, <laughs> if you say, I'm not as gifted in evangelism, or I'm not at all gifted in evangelism, therefore I'm not going to do any evangelism, or I'm not going to reach out, uh, you, you undercut your calling significantly, to say the least. So, you know, wherever wherever I went, I just realized I'm not going to be the big programs guy. I'm not going to come up with some genius method for reaching out in the community. And so I've got to establish relationships wherever I go. When I meet unbelievers, talk to them about the gospel, you know, befriend them, try to establish longer term relationships. Um, got to meet my neighbors. Um, and, and it was, it was funny because early on, um, one door that the Lord opened up was, was in my, local bank of all places. And, and so I, I would go in there and, um, interesting. Yeah. The, the setup at the bank was different than a lot of other banks. You know, they, they had a, a line of tellers that were in sort of an L shape. And so if you sat down in the central part of that, really all of the tellers and everybody in the bank could hear your conversation. And so every time, you know, I would, you know, bring, uh, bring a you know check from the church for instance and, and they would say oh you know are, are you a pastor and so off you go and there were a lot of conversations right in the middle of the bank and walmart of all places um, where i was able to talk about the reformed faith and uh, and able even to invite people to come to church um, one of the one of the challenges since you're talking about difficulties my my children would they're not the challenge, although maybe in some respects, but that they developed this mentality that they, they would see me talk to people and witness this, mm, and they would mm-hmm. say, "Daddy, why is it that you invite all these people, and not a single one of them ever comes to the church?" And you know, I think mission works that maybe are listening uh, to this podcast can have sympathy with this, right? Uh, even empathy. Because this is our testimony. We, we have had a number of, of very dry seasons where, you know, despite our, our efforts and, and, and even our fervent prayers, um, you know, 
nobody comes. Now, another difficulty along with that was that the meeting place that we had, again, you know, if you're a mission work, you can, this will resonate with you. Um, we were in rented space and mm. it was a tiny hole in the wall. Um, and if we had, you know, 25 people in there, it got very hot, very uncomfortable. It was already dark and it just was not a good location. Now I praise God for it because he sustained the work in such a place for a very long time. Um, but anyways, yeah, that what we, we had little to no budget for outreach. And so even if you wanted our programs, you really, you had no budget for it. So the onus there was on building relationships with the people that we met. Um, and, uh, you know, location of the building, the discouragement of going long periods of time without any visitors. And then we also had difficulties early on. Um, the, the, these people, their, their pastor uh, seemed like he was chronically ill. <laughs> so uh, on top of all the other challenges, uh, there was a four-month period early on where I was sick every week in the pulpit. Um, and, you know, we're a long way away from, you know, the next closest OPC church. And so you can't just call somebody up and get relief from the pulpit. Um, I, it was it was a great, great lesson for me, really, in God's providence. Just I, I think I came in with thin skin and was a little wimpy. And these were the kind of things that the Lord just engineered in his providence to uh, to mature me, uh, for one, um, and, and also to, to allow the congregation to just hang in there through, uh, th- through a lot of the discouragements of trying to see a church planted. Yeah, that's... Um one of the things that you said that kind of that 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 made me think about you know you don't have a budget for outreach and that, you know that just kind of goes without saying just the reality of of the situation but strongly encouraging the core people that are there to be about the business of inviting people to church and be about the business of associating with their neighbors and their friends and their family members whatever um and and sort of use that as a as it were free uh, advertising right <laughs> i hate to say that word but i mean that's you know that that's I heard somewhere, I read somewhere, um, that one of the main reasons why people come to church in the first place is because somebody actually invited them. Right. And, you know, so, um, and, and that's such a, it just can't be overstated how important that is. Um, it, it's one thing to go door to door and talk to people and invite them to church. Um, it's another thing when somebody you already know that you work with on a daily basis says, "Hey, you know, do you go to do you attend a church right now?" No, I, I I don't. Well, how is it to come to our church on Sunday morning? Here's what we do, and it's, you know, uh, that's just different. It has a personal appeal, a personal f- uh, flair to it that just connects better than cold calling, as it were. Um, and so that's one way to accomplish that. And it sounds like that's something you encouraged your people to do anyway. And um, more churches need to do that, even if they're established churches. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Um, and I'm thinking about some churches right now in my mind, but I won't say <laughs> who they are. Um, but anyway, so so you went through this process. Now, how long were you in this mission work phase? Well, you know, they, they were a mission work all the way back to 1999. And um, so when I came... 10 years later was called there and, and ordained in June of, of 2009. 
we essentially were a mission work still all the way up until just recently uh, the church uh, was particularized on uh, May the 16th of this year. It was a very mm. exciting time in the life of the congregation. So this was very recent. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. And, and, and what happens when you go from mission status to particularized status? I mean, do you like to have a big party, or how does that work? I mean, I was being funny when I said that. I, was, I know something happens. Obviously, I know the answer to this question before I asked it, but most people probably don't. Um, th- what do you do? Yeah, the, the process, um, d- dating back to, to 2011, um, I, I had, I had been trying to think about the eventuality, you know, Lord, what, what needs to happen now in order for us to be ready, if you're pleased to bring the work along for us to, to become a particular work. And so we started again with, with the men and some of the young men, even some of the college students, uh, entered into a, a, about a six to eight month period of, of discipleship training uh, where we met every Saturday morning, and it was just a rich time of of learning and, and fellowship and growth. I think for the men. Uh, then on the top of that, uh, we were able in God's province to begin officer training uh, the next year, and that was a very very lengthy process. Uh, mm. But you know, the thing that primarily distinguishes a mission work or church plant from you know, a regular organized or particular congregation uh, is the lack of officers in the mission work. Now they have, you know, like we've talked about, they have a loaner session. You know, the presbytery has loaned us a provisional session. Or if you're a daughter church, then your mother church has provided you um, with their session um, in, in most cases. So for us, it was the latter. So we realized that we we needed to have you know, men raised up from within the congregation, recognized by the mission work as those men that they desired uh, to have as their spiritual fathers in the faith. And so uh, we we had long, long officer training, many, many months, uh, re- really fruitful time. Um, and and I, I thank God for that. But that paved the way then. Uh, for us in early uh, 2014 uh, to get the approval of the provisional session to move forward um, and then to uh, certify the uh, the men who had been in training to stand for the office of ruling elder. We didn't have any deacon candidates. Uh, and then finally, um, we had a congregational meeting uh, in which we uh we voted on the men, and they were all approved by the congregation um, as ruling elders um, at that point. And then they voted to call me as the uh, the pastor, uh, whereas before I had been the organizing pastor of the church planter. And then they now now, and that's a good. And that, I'm glad you asked. You said that because technically, then before you were particularized, you were actually you were vested with the the um, with the um, Office of Evangelist, is that correct? Correct, yeah. And and though the the differences um, as they play themselves out are probably little to none, right? <laughs> um, th- but there is a difference, and 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 um, in, especially in Presbyterian polity, can you briefly highlight the difference? Yeah, you know, 
one of the practical differences is that you don't have a local session um, there. You're you're working with men to provide oversight to the mission work and to bring the work forward. You're working with men who live hours away from you and yep. that are not there. Now these are godly men. And so you're work so you're called by those by them to do this work. And so you're you're not called for that local you're not actually called by that congregation directly. So right. until you become particularized, now you're the pastor of that church, hence the change of the name. And so, um, and so that's a, such a, that's really the, the, you know, that functional difference. Um, and now really you have protection from the presbytery as well. And we won't get into all sure. that, but, um, yeah. but I think, but it's an important distinction to make as in, until an evangelist is, um, in, in pastoring a particularized church, he's really working for that organizing session that may or may not be close by. And so, um, you're really kind of like, the worldly way or the business way my past experience 20 years in the business world would be like you in a sense you're the you're the CEO of of this session for this particular branch <laughs> over here and someplace else and um and so you're working for them until such time as you become independent as it were so it's just an interesting distinction and i, I think it gets missed but um but practically speaking really it doesn't look much different i mean do you feel any different now that you're a "Quote unquote pastor as opposed to evangelist." Um, y- yes and no. Um, the, the no is is for reasons that you've already mentioned. The right, the, the practical on the ground work. Yes, yeah. The the yes in terms of the huge difference is, you know, now we have three ruling elders in the congregation. Exactly. Yep. And yep. and it has been such a refreshment um, because in 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 the ways in which. The provisional session is, by definition, unable to minister the congregation adequately in many ways. Uh, these men, by the grace of God, have stepped into that that void and have been a real blessing um, to the congregation uh, as a whole. So, yeah, it, it's a wonderful thing. And, and you mentioned having a party. We, uh, you know, we we joke about that, but really, I mean, the particularization service is a celebration of the wonderful providence of God. And, you know, I mentioned before how the church on one occasion, you know, very nearly closed its doors. The mission work uh, nearly became, you know, defunct. And, you know, it's through that kind of thing, many, uh, many difficulties over, you know, a 15-year period that the Lord brought this congregation through. So when when you talk about, you um, the people that had been there for a long time, uh, when they got to that service of particularization where the elders are being uh, installed and uh, and were being recognized by the presbytery as as a church for the first mm-hmm. time, the j- joy uh, was it, w- it was just amazing, and, and we we praise God. <laughs> it was really wonderful. Yeah, and part of that process of going from mission to particularization is you're identifying men who may be uh, called of God to fulfill the office of ruling elder. I mean, that's one of the things that you're you're probably actively looking at and considering. Um, and how – this is a question I actually have, and I don't know the answer to, um, so this is good um, – how do you, as you identify men uh, that may be potential candidates for elder, how is it different 
than in an established church where like like in our church when I was um, when I was um, elected as a ruling elder, we had a season of nominations. The congregation nominated men, and then the session met with them. They were trained. Or they de- determined whether they were eligible. Then they were trained, and then they were put before the congregation to be elected. And then they were elected. Is it the same process, or is there a difference? Yeah, I, I think. Do it's, you understand my question? Yeah, yeah. I think I think the process actually is is very similar. Uh, okay, but 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 here's the challenge, and and this has been you know, my observation, my observation in, you know, in, I say regular churches as opposed to a mission work in a mission work, you know, that if you don't proactively disciple and seek out and seek to identify men who are potential elders and deacons, that they're not just going to drop in your lap. I mean, you're, you have to be proactive and intentional about that identification Mm -hmm. and training. Whereas in, you know, local churches, typically, um, that, that doesn't always happen. And and if you've already got, you know, um, a number of elders and deacons, then you're, you're, you're like the likelihood you're going to be proactive in, you know, discipling and trying to identify new ones is maybe less. I'm not saying necessarily. I'm just saying it seems like practically that that, that happens sure. a lot in churches. Yeah, and I just think that you know clearly uh, for a mission work, especially the, the identification of elders, has got to be pretty pretty high in the priority list because you've, you you know eventually you're going to Lord willing you're going to move to particularization and then you're going to need that help, which is why we have ruling elders. Um, to assist the pastor in the work of the ministry at the local church. Too many times, even in Presbyterianism, and much to my frustration as a ruling elder, I see pastors trying to do everything, Mm -hmm. and the ruling elders are happy to let them. And that is not the way it should be. And, and, and then we wonder why our pastors absolutely blow up and burn out and get discouraged and get frustrated because they're working 95 hours a week when they don't need to be, A. Um, B, um, the, the, the congregation suffers because the elders who are called of God to do that work are not doing that work. And so there's not this joint effort in the ministry, and which is so vital to the ministry. Otherwise, God wouldn't have given us elders. And so um, I, I would think that, it, that would have to be really a really high priority, and I'll get off my soapbox now. No, absolutely. That that is no, brother. That that's a critical um, a critical point, uh, I think, to be made. I mean, I can I can you know I speak from personal experience as a ruling elder. One of the things that I I'm I'm constantly uh, trying to impress is that I want my pastor about the business of the word and prayer and visiting, and the, the direct work of the ministry, and not busy changing light bulbs in the church, raking leaves, mowing the lawn, uh, doing all those other things. That's why God gave elders and deacons to the church. That's why they're there, and that's what they need to be doing. And so that doesn't mean elders don't visit. They ought to be. They better be. They should be. Yeah. Otherwise, they're not doing their job. I mean, I'll just say that. Right. I'll just, so if you're listening to this program, and you're a ruling elder in the church, and you are not visiting your people, then shame on you. I'm just going to say it. You are not doing your job. That that's it. That's the bottom line. You should be visiting your people. And it, you know, it's not the pastor's job to visit everybody in the church. You're there to help him. And so you do it too. And um and if you're a deacon, you you, you know, that's your job. You you don't have to change every light bulb. You organize it. 
you 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 facilitate that you oversee it you delegate it but you you alert the congregation to these needs and you know your pastor should not be changing light bulbs i'm sorry i mean it's just and i'm not why am i picking light bulbs i don't know because it seems so <laughs> innocuous i mean it's like what's the big deal you walk down the hall the light bulb needs to be changed well, yeah, that's where it starts. It starts with changing the light bulbs. The next thing you know, you expect your pastor to be raking leaves and, and painting the church sign and, um, and, and redecorating the nursery and whatever else. And so that's how it always starts. And so it seems to me that in a mission work situation, a lot of times you are doing all those things because you don't really have the help right now um, officially. Um, but then when you become particularized, you have these elders and deacons in place to help with the work of the ministry, which is, as you said, it takes on a different dynamic then at that point. And, um, and so there you feel differently as a pastor. Now, am I, am I close to accurate or am I way off the deep end? Yeah. You know, Bill, this is, it's very interesting when I was interviewed, um, before, uh, formally receiving the call to Cookville, I was interviewed by the denominations committee. Uh, for home missions. And they asked me, what, what is your greatest weakness? And, you know, I thought, wow, I, I, I wish some questions were out of bounds, but, but I, I mean, while, you know, you could go on and on and on about what your weaknesses are. One of them, uh, Dr. Piper might have a comment on this as well. Uh, but administration, you know, I knew that delegating and doing administrative work was not only my weakness, but, but was my, I just hated it. And I knew that was going to be a problem. So the, the tendency with that weakness is to just, it's just easier to do everything yourself. And so not only did I not fight <laughs> against the pastor does everything mentality, I actually fostered it because, because you know, I didn't want to delegate. I, I didn't want to take the time to uh, to ask for help or any of those things. Now, fast forward uh, five years, and you know, by the grace of God, when the we particularized in May, and you know, the local session now is formed, and I've got three ruling elders and and myself on the session. Um, I I have I have prayed that the Lord would help me in this area. And my elders now have been delegated so many things that they're just staggered <laughs> to the point where, you know, I, I've probably, I've, I've probably overdone it uh, in, in the beginning of their time as ruling elders in the congregation. Uh, but, but I, I've been so, mm. I guess, sensitive to the fact that in, in many, many churches, it's completely pastor centric. And that's a terrible terrible model for ministry. Yeah, well, it, and it's so easy. You know, I mean, I think you're absolutely right, and we're getting a little afield here from what we were talking about, <laughs> but I think it's important, and, 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 and it, it is so easy for a pastor. I mean, here I am training for the ministry, and, and I am type A. I mean, if anybody listens to this podcast knows Bill Hill is type A. No question, I am type A, and, um, and I am the kind of guy that would say, you know what? Um, I'm just going to do it myself because I'm I, I'm here. It's it needs to be done. I'll just do it. Um, but you know what? If you maintain that, as the church grows, you will explode. Mm. You'll explode. Mm. You will. There's not enough hours in a day anyway to do ministry the right way, um, and and that's not an attack on the providence of God and giving us 24 hours in a day. It's not that's not what I meant. What I meant is that it's it's awfully difficult. And if you don't manage your time well, and if it, you consume your time with 
with changing light bulbs and raking leaves and painting the nursery, um, you will not have time for what the apostles said are the two primary things that the pastor should be doing, giving themselves to the, to the ministry of prayer and to the word and in that order. Mm-hmm. And so, um, I mean, and then you, what you do, what you just said is so true. You foster that in your elders and your deacons because you do it. And so they just sit back and they're happy to let you. Yeah. <laughs> and and it's not malicious. It's just, I don't need to do it. It's been done. Right. Right. <laughs> and, and, and so being a particularized church does have that, that added blessing of having these two um, physical and spiritual need helps by these two, by these two groups, the, the, the session or the elders and the deacons, and um, then training them to do the work of the ministry. And, um, you know, I, I, I've shared this in the past. I don't know if I've done it on the podcast, but one of the things that I would love to see uh, in my ministry, if the Lord wills, is that, um, that I'm discipling and mentoring and shepherding my ruling elders directly so that they can shepherd and mentor and disciple the membership directly. Now, what I mean by that is that I know some churches break up their congregations into shepherding groups and elders are assigned to different groups. We do that. Um, what I would like my shepherding group to be is my elders. And then they then would have shepherding groups of the congregation. Now, this doesn't mean that I would never visit. Of course I would. It wouldn't mean, doesn't mean that I don't go to the hospital. Of course I will. Um, but it means that I'm training them in those things so that they can do it. So if I drop dead, then it, tomorrow, this stuff continues. It doesn't stop because I'm not there. And that and that's all I'm saying. So anyway. Bill, I'll, I'll, let okay. you, I'll let you know how that works out because that's the exact model that we've implemented in Cookville. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, and it's not unique with me. I actually got this from another pastor who I greatly respect up in Virginia, yeah. who that was always his goal and desire um, to do it that way because he saw the, the benefit. You're passing it on. I mean, that's so if you bring another pastor in, uh, you, you get a call somewhere else or you leave the ministry or what, something happens and you're not there. Um, you know, it, nothing should change. Right. The congregation can't suffer just because the pastor's gone. Yeah. Yes. And and unfortunately, I see that too many times with churches that don't have they don't have a pastor. And because they haven't done these kinds of things, the congregation ultimately suffers because there's nothing in place to accomplish it. And, um, uh, you know, I so I. I don't know. It's not. It may not be a perfect solution. I'm sure it's not because it was devised by a man. But it sounds to me like, practically speaking, there's a certain value in that process. But anyway, so now that we are way off the topic, yeah. and uh, on a topic that really gets me uh, triggers uh, my emotions significantly. <laughs> um, what What are your goals now? Um, now you're a particularized church, very recent. Um, what What kind of goals do you have for the church and um, and for your ministry there, um, there locally. Yeah. Well, the, um, the, the, just in bullet point fashion, you know, we, we really want to be better about reaching out where we are. So if that's in our neighborhoods where we live, um, you know, praying specifically for families, uh, you know, that are in close proximity. Um, and, and then in particular, uh, outreach, outreach, and, and I say that in quotes, I mean, really just living out the gospel in the midst of uh, where we are geographically. And, the, and let me, if you don't mind, brother, one, mm-hmm. of the neatest, one of the neatest stories about God's grace to us here in Cookville is, is with regard to the provision of a building. You know, I mentioned earlier in the podcast how 
we met in this dark, dank, you know, little box. And, and the Lord sustained us there and blessed us there for many years. But uh, we had a visitor one Sunday that asked to have breakfast. And so the next morning, I or maybe it was two days later, I went and had breakfast uh, with he and his wife. And as we were sitting there, um, he offered to give the church a number of acres of property um, that he owned. And, mm-hmm. you know, I almost fell over dead. I, I was in such shock. We had been looking for, you know, property or a new place to rent or that sort of thing. But, you know, we couldn't buy because we couldn't afford it. And uh, the rent was just sky high for anything that was larger than what we had. So we were kind of hamstrung that way. And now this guy offers property. But we still had the problem of, well, that's wonderful. But I we I don't think we could build. And we were... Remember the provisional session was together. We were parked at a Shell gas station. We had car pulled to the church from there. And we were all in the same car and we were praying. We got a phone call from the treasurer saying that he had just received a pledge to underwrite the entire remaining cost of a building on that property. Wow. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> but we, we, were, we were speechless. I mean, mm-hmm. and... This is just the way that that the Lord works. You know, one of the themes of of my time here and and just that the Lord has has shown us again and again and again is what Paul says uh, about about the grace of God. It's sufficient. And and we've seen that the Lord has taken us, you know, into this new building with absolutely not a penny of debt and, you know, and and even removed our rent payment to boot. So, um, you know, that, that was very encouraging. Then we had um, in the building, uh, we had an incident um, just last year, and this is still on the theme of my grace is sufficient. This is one of my goals, brother, that, that we never lose sight of God's uh-huh. all-sufficient grace. But this is another very uh, different flavored story, but still, still powerfully illustrates the point. Um, our children were outside, and, um, you know, at, the, the way we used to have our services was, Uh, We would worship in the morning, we would have a fellowship meal, and then we would worship again immediately afterwards because we had families that were driving from long distances. Well, after all of that, the kids, the kids always go outside and and blow off a little bit of steam for a few minutes. And so they were out in the back and they were, you know, running around. And uh, my two oldest children had a blind collision and my daughter, Hannah, um, you know, from the collision, hit the ground and immediately went into a full seizure. And, you know, the kids came screaming into the church, you know, for us to come. And my wife and I got out there and for about 45 minutes, the paramedics were calling everything like that. But for 45 minutes, they were not able to get her to show any response to, uh, to stimuli. And, and it was, you know, it was the scariest moment of our, our parenting lives for sure. But, she was wow. she was later airlifted um, to to Vanderbilt and um, and and through that whole thing, you know, you marvel at the things that God in His providence uses to knit the hearts of a people together, and and just crying out on the back lawn of the church property, you know, for God's mercy and and praying that you know not our will but His will be done that, you know, he would indeed show us how 
he works all things mm-hmm. together for good. You know, we were driving to Vanderbilt. You know, she was being airlifted. My wife and I are being driven on the on the highway uh, to there. And in the middle of the drive, um, I, I I could not get Paul's words out of my out of my head, and I was glad for it. You know, my grace is sufficient for you. Um, the end of the story is that you know. Hannah was fine. She was discharged that same night even um, and is doing well even today. But we were able at prayer meeting last Wednesday uh, or a couple Wednesdays ago, uh, our our oldest woman in the congregation, one of the founding members, uh, she said, tonight we need to, with gratitude, thank the Lord for the one year anniversary of that accident that could have gone horribly different. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, along those lines, you know, we, we want to reach out, we want to remain faithful. And the way to do that is to, to remember that it is God's grace that's sufficient. You know, Paul cries out, who's sufficient for these things, namely the ministry and the, you know, it's rhetorical. Nobody is, uh, save one. And that is our, our Lord Jesus, the, the great shepherd of the sheep. But you know, we want to assimilate new families. We've had a number of new families that have come in the last six months, which has been a tremendous blessing. Uh, but with that comes challenges. Um, and we want to continue to develop the ministry uh, of the session, um, all the while maintaining uh, our passionate commitment to corporate prayer, uh, which is a much neglected, as you hinted at earlier, means of grace. Um, yep. Yeah, I mean, don't, another soapbox I could easily climb on. Yeah. Um, corporate prayer and the prayer meeting, it's all but been removed from our our weekly church life to our own detriment. Um, sad to say. Yeah. Um, I, you know... <laughs> Well, anyway, I'm like that's a that's a whole other topic. That's a great topic for a podcast. <laughs> um, that would be a great one. Um, the importance of the prayer meeting in in the life of the church. I, I, that would be a fantastic discussion. But uh, anyway, you know, one of the questions here that I have in this list that um, was given to me um, for consideration today is one that I don't want to just I don't want to ignore. I think it's interesting and 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 it touches on something about mission work. Uh, moving to particularization that is um, often ignored, mm-hmm. um, but it's this question of the the difficulty or the even the temptation maybe to kind of uh, fudge hedge on the confessional standards in light of the pragmatic desire to get more people. Yeah, did you find that to be a, 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 any temptation at all, or was well? I'll just leave that question there. Yeah. Um- I think that that probably depends on largely on who the Lord ends up bringing to a work. So in our particular case, um, the Lord was gracious in that the ones that he brought, even, even those that didn't have, you know, necessarily reformed backgrounds, there weren't that many of those, unfortunately, I wish there were a lot more, but the ones that came, uh, the, the first man that ever came, uh, he's still with us. He's, he's a dear brother. Um, it was and is married um, to a Jehovah's Witness. And he was converted uh, in the midst of having already married uh, into this situation. Um, and, you know, 
again, he could have been one that, that wanted to be a mover and shaker and come in and, and he's a musician by trade. So he could have been wholly dissatisfied by the way we worship, you know, Hey, let's spice things up. We could really get a lot of people through the doors. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that happens all the time. Um, you know, this, this pressure to be relevant as if, you know, the sufficient word <laughs> is not somehow essentially relevant already. Um, what we really, Bill, I, I'm thankful to say we really did not have struggles with that. There was not the pressure that I thought was going to be there uh, to move in um, in different directions uh, than, than the confessional standards. The one area, and, and look, this is, if you're a confessionally reformed work, there is always going to be a struggle in the area of the fourth commandment regarding how to keep the Lord's day. I mean, that's, that, that is, that, you know, another topic for the podcast, I'll leave that to Dr. Piper and uh, Dr. It's hard, hard to get used to that Dr. McGraw uh, to touch on those things. But, you know, that, that was always there. Um, that was there even in our officer training. And, and I anticipate it'll continue uh, to be an issue as we receive new members. And as we, you know, seek to be faithful. Um, there's not a month that goes by that I don't have to reevaluate my own practice um, in, in my sure. in my home uh, regarding the Lord's Day. So yeah, there, there's always that. But the Lord was gracious to us in that, and we we have I think delighted to retain our uh, confessional self consciousness. If that's not too much of a you know loaded phrase. And one thing that occurred to me, too, when it comes to the temptation to maybe drift away from that when you're trying to establish a church is that another reason why it's good to establish a church with the direct connection of a body that's already established. So that you have that oversight, you have that accountability, and you're not able to just run around and do whatever you want, and you think that's all fine and good because you're getting the results. Yeah. You see, you see. And so another good argument for why churches are planted and they're not just uh, they just don't. Uh, they don't just show up. Uh, they don't get dropped out of space and land in a place. But, <laughs> right. but churches that are already established and are faithful are then planting um, other faithful congregations as well. Yeah. And so you have that accountability kind of there, kind of watching and seeing and you know, checking along the way in case something is going amiss. Do you have any um, counsel? I mean, maybe something you would say to a man who's in seminary, who's uh, either contemplating um, a mission work type of ministry uh, life uh, out of seminary, or maybe some men who are already involved in it and still at that stage and wondering if the Lord will ever get them out of that stage. Um, do you have anything, to, uh, to you know, words of wisdom based on your experience that you could offer? Well, you know, without being, being too presumptuous, um, the ways in which the Lord has worked here and provided here have been counter to what we may be expected. In other words, in a, in a church plant, you run around doing all kinds of things, you know, meeting people mm-hmm. and inviting people and, and, you know, maybe having outreach events and, and things of that nature. And, and your hope is that that will bring people into the church. Well, we invited lots of people. And we reached out to a lot of people and there was in the first two years, there was one family that came to the church by direct invitation from me. Now there were others that other people had invited, but, but very few and far between. And 
you just you can't assume that you know how the Lord is going to set in order the things that remain using, you know, Paul's language to Titus and Titus one there. You know, mm-hmm. Titus was called to to set in order that which remained in Crete. And you you know the baseline. You preach, you know, you evangelize, you reach out, you worship, you pray, um, and and you you use the means, but 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 then in our case, the Lord brought people out of nowhere. Uh, you know, again, it's in his providence. He sovereignly did things to stabilize the work and provided for us in ways we could never imagine. And so you know, don't become discouraged because you have nine months where you don't have a single visitor. Now, now again, be contemplative and, and more than anything, be prayerful and dependent upon the Lord. Um, I, I'm not saying, hey, it's a great thing we had nine months where there was not a single visitor. But that happened to us two different times in this work. And it's discouraging. But yep. but don't get into a man-centered approach to planting a church. It's Jesus Christ who plants and builds and grows his church and he gives us the privilege of, of participating in that as yeah. you know frail vessels. So that that would be, you know, maybe just general counsel in, in that direction. Yeah, and it's very good to remember that because, uh, uh, as I've said to friends of mine, uh, yeah, God doesn't knew, God doesn't really need us to do anything. I mean, at the end of the day, um, you know, He created the universe without my help. <laughs> um, you know, and, and without my without my input, and it, you know what? And, and I know that sounds funny to say that because everybody's like, "Well, duh," but the point is, is that it's the same thing about everything. Um, you know, working on a sermon and 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 wrestling over a text, and then thinking the whole thing depends on you. And you know what? It it just doesn't. <laughs> and when you realize that, there's almost a liberating feeling about the reality that. If Christ is going to build this church, then it's going to get built. And if Christ is going to work in this church, he's, it's go, he's going to work. And um, yes, you're faithful to use the means that God has given us. It, it doesn't mean let go and let God. It doesn't mean sit back on your hands and watch TV all day long and then wonder why we don't have any visitors. Um, you know, certainly those are all true things. But at the end of the day, if he doesn't build it, it doesn't get built. And we can labor faithfully. And if he doesn't want to build it, it won't get built. So, um, you know, the idea that, you know, who can open a door? God closes. Who can close a door? God opens. Yes. No one. So, um, so it's really good to remember that. I mean, in any aspect of life, not just mission work uh, and church planning, but you know, going to going to a job on Monday morning and and wrestling with a difficult boss and and and, and understanding all of those aspects and realize that you know God is in charge and. Um, he has me in this place at this time for for his reasons, and I'm to be faithful, mm. and that's it. And I mean, that's the Christian life in a lot of ways. So um, anyway, now, if I could interject well, just, just one more one yeah, more just to yeah. counsel. One of the things that we did struggle with as well from time to time in the midst of the discouragements was the fear of man. And mm-hmm. and and in, and with one illustration in, in particular, we had. Uh, the man that I mentioned to you, who the Lord brought, he was he was um, the first one to ever make public profession of faith as an adult and be baptized uh, mm-hmm. in the congregation. And um, he w- the first Sunday he was ever there, 
he walked up to me after the first service and he says in his, in his, you know, Southern draw, you know, pastor Matt, when can I join this church? I mean, he was eager. He, he wanted from day one to be a part of the work. And, and I thought to myself at that point, wow, this church planning is really, really easy. This is great. Um, well, of course, you know, things change. So a month later, as he still, you know, seems to be very warm on the, on the work and, um, you know, we're, we're celebrating the, the Lord's Supper for the first time um, since he's been visiting, but he's not yet a member and hasn't made professional faith or been baptized. And so, you know, I'm fencing the table, which is, you know, giving the qualifications for who may come, who may not. And, mm-hmm. you know, he could not come because he had not yet made his professional faith and been baptized. So uh, during the celebration of the supper, I, I noticed that as soon as we finished, he got up out of there right after the closing hymn, didn't even wait for the benediction, and he bolted out the door and left. Mm. And one of the, the ruling elders on the provisional session was, was there that day, and he and I sat in the hall and looked at each other, and, and, and we, we were basically uh, having a false prophecy session um, re- regarding the fact that uh, you know, we must have offended him with the fencing of the table, and you know, we'll probably never see the guy again. So I, you know, I realized what was going on. Thankfully, after we had already commiserated for five, ten minutes, and, and I, I said to my brother, you know, we need to just trust the Lord, and and you know, the Lord, Lord builds the church, you know. So let let's let's just rest in Him and pray about this. So the next day, I called the guy who had bolted out the door in haste and left, uh, you know, not still not knowing anything that had happened. And, and I asked him, you know, Hey brother, are you okay? And I know where this is going. Yeah. And, and he says, he says, Oh, pastor Matt, I was thinking about my, my wife who's a Jehovah's witness and you know, the, 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 the kids and, and the, <laughs> we were singing that hymn at the lamb's high feast we sing. And I, I just couldn't tolerate the fact in my, my mind that they were going to to never know what it would taste like to commune with Jesus Christ unless the Lord was merciful. And it just overwhelmed my soul. And I had to go and drive my car to a parking lot and I just wept. And and I'm sitting here listening on the other end of the phone thinking, okay, (laughs) the Lord is definitely not going to build this church because of me. (laughs) I mean, I, I have the fear of man, and I, we, my elder and I had all these ideas about what must have happened. And here's this guy who is, you know, a week away from from being baptized and making public profession of faith, weeping over the fact, not that he was being fenced out for one more week, but that his family potentially might never know what it was to commune with Jesus. <laughs> and it's just one of the most humbling things ever happened to me. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's funny as you tell that story and I know we're running long, but I, it's funny as you tell that story. I, I, I was, I'm thinking about my wife who's uh, regularly saying to me, Bill, give people the benefit of the doubt. Mm-hmm. You don't know the whole story. You probably don't know the whole story. Give people the benefit. She says it to me all the time. And because we want to jump to those conclusions because we think there's a one-to-one relationship to what I just did to what, how they reacted. Yes. 
And in this, and, and as you were telling the story, I'm like, I, I, it's going to be something completely different than what he was thinking. <laughs> and, you know, and and that's what we do, um, because because we have limited vision. Let's face yeah. it. And 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 yeah, uh, and so give people the benefit of the doubt. It may not be what you think. Things are seldom as they seem. Yes. <laughs> so. Um, yeah, um, but but that's a good story and good good way of illustrating uh, the point too that um, Christ is ultimately, uh, you know, he's the chief shepherd, he's the good shepherd, he's shepherding, he's leading, he's guiding, he's building, he's and he will bring all things to fruition and and it will be victorious and glorious and great and we not need not fear and um, so. Anyway, well, Matt, it's been good. I know we've been long. I, I, I mentioned off air with you. I try to keep it under an hour. We, I, we now have crossed the hour and 30 minute threshold, um, but that's okay. Um, it, it's a good topic. And, and as we and I said to you off air that there's a number of mission works that are existing out there um, that are in the middle of this process that you've just come out of. So perhaps this will be used to help encourage them to stay the course, be faithful, pray, be diligent. Um, use the means of grace God's given, and trust that He will do um, do the work that He is uh, there that He is uh, starting and doing, and will complete um, in in whatever location they may be. But again, I thank you for being on and for talking with me and us, the listeners, about this subject. Um, one that I think most common people sitting in the pews that they don't grasp completely. The process and in the struggles and the difficulties and the successes and the joys that come with it. But um, anyway, it's been been very good, edifying conversation. Thanks, brother. Appreciate you having me. Yep. Hang on just a second. Let me uh, do a, a couple pieces of housekeeping. Um, just want to let everybody know again, reminder about the faith and practice segments that we do. Um, uh, by the time you hear this podcast, segment eight will have been already recorded, so it's too late obviously, to submit your questions for segment eight of Faith and Practice, which, if you don't know, is uh, an opportunity for you, the listener, to write theological or practical questions in to the president of Greenville Seminary, who will then review them and answer them on air. And if so, you will then receive a free book from our seminary bookstore sent to you postpaid the whole nine yards. So if you have questions uh, for segment nine, uh, which we try to do once a month, uh, simply go to our website, confessingourhope.com. There's a form there to fill in. It's very simple. Just submit your question, uh, and then we will take it and review it. And if we use it, you will receive that free book of your choosing um, from a list that we have um, and sent to you without any cost whatsoever. So take advantage of that opportunity. But as I said, segment eight will um, have already been recorded when you hear this particular broadcast, but segment nine of course, will show up in August. So think ahead now and submit your questions to us. And if you have more information or more questions or want more information about the podcast, uh, what are we doing? Who's coming up on the broadcast? Uh, who have we interviewed in the past? You can go to the confessingourhope.com website. All of that information is there. If you want to know about me, um, if you're really bored and have nothing else to do, uh, I, there's information about me there as well. It's, it's not that glorious. Uh, don't waste your time. Um, but anyway, that's all a joke. I'm just kidding. Relax. Everybody calm down. It's all good. We have fun on this thing. Um, you know, We're Presbyterians, but we can have fun. It's possible. Um, I promise. So anyway, that is uh, how you can stay in tune or stay up to date with what's occurring on the broadcast. So until next time, when we... Uh, when 
next time that is when the next podcast you will hear uh, will be Faith and Practice segment number eight with Dr. Joseph Piper, who will answer your questions that have been submitted to date um, on various topics. And I've seen them, and they are very good. So tune in to that um, uh, next week. So until then, we do thank you for listening to this particular edition, a, a candid conversation with Matt Figuera on the issue of mission work, planning a church, all of its pitfalls, difficulties, and encouragements to going down that road to being an ind- well, uh, independent. I almost made a fupa. Independent's not the right word. To being a particularized church and, uh, as it were, self-sustaining as well. So until next time, we thank you for listening to this particular edition. And God bless.